Thanks for joining us. I'm Steve Shu, And I'm Corey Washington, and we're your hosts for Manifold. Our guest today is Warren Hatch, President and CEO of Good Judgment Incorporated. Good Judgment is a pioneering firm in the field of political, economic, financial, and now public health forecasting. Previously, Warren was a portfolio manager at Morgan Stanley, later a principal at Catalpa Capital, McLinden Research. He has a DPhil in politics from Oxford, an MA in Russian and International Policy Studies from Middlebury Institute of International Studies. Warren has a BA in history from the University of Utah. He is a licensed CFA. Welcome to Manifold, Warren. Thank you, Corey. How are you today? I'm doing all right. Um, it's been five years since the publication of Philip Tetlock's book, Super Forecasting and 15 years since the publication of Tetlock's book, Expert Political Judgment, two books that sparked what I call the forecasting revolution. And so I would like to get into what's been happening since those books are published and your leading role in developing the commercial arm of the project. Okay, yeah, go back to the mists of time. Um, so Good Judgment Project, was a research initiative led by professors Philip Tetlock and Barbara Mellers, uh, who were uh, at the University of California, Berkeley, and then moved to University of Pennsylvania in Wharton during the research project. So both universities were involved in the research project for that team. And they were one of several teams in a tournament sponsored by the US government, the US intelligence agencies. And what they wanted to find out the US government was, is there a way to improve on the wisdom of the crowd when we're thinking about uncertain events? They launched this research project at a time when they were doing some soul searching about some policy and intelligence uh, forecasts that they had made that did not show them at their best. Weapons of mass destruction, 9-11, those were pretty significant intelligence failures, and they wanted to learn from that. So Warren, I just want to stop for a second, because I think this is worth emphasizing, right? People do worry about whether the U.S. government really took seriously the failures of those two serious intelligence um, debacles. And this whole project came out of the recognition that something went seriously wrong and need to be improved. Uh, is that is that a proper statement? Uh, well, I wouldn't want to speak for them and what their motivators were, but it is clear that they were doing some soul searching and they were looking genuinely for ways to improve their forecasting skills. And they, it was an open question. Can you do better than a wisdom of the crowd approach to get uh, accurate forecasts? Because it does work. We see it in many places. Uh, there's a long literature on Wisdom of the crowd, you see it in who wants to be a millionaire, always ask the crowd, don't phone a friend. And we've seen it in other spheres as well. And so it became a testable proposition, can you do better? And uh, they sponsor research, the US government, that's very speculative in nature. And they genuinely did not have a preconceived notion of whether uh, something useful would come out. And indeed, uh, for the other research teams, they failed to reach the goal set by the US government to improve on the accuracy of the wisdom of the crowd. 
Um, some did and came close in the first year, but by the second year, none of them had. And so what the US government did was they said, okay, team good judgment is clearly onto something. Let's consolidate resources there. And what was that something? The something was to take a very empirical evidence-based approach. Sorry, could, could we describe the mechanics of the tournament? Because I think our listeners maybe aren't even aware of what a prediction market or prediction forecasting tournament is like. So just, just the basic mechanics, which I think you're saying good judgment won. Okay. So the tournament that the U.S. government sponsored invited a number of teams affiliated with universities and other organizations in the private sector to come up with ways to improve on the wisdom of the crowd. They were free to deploy any uh, tools or techniques that they thought would work. And all they were required to do was at the end of every day, deliver a forecast on each of the open questions that were set to the different uh, tournament institutions. So they were all forecasting on the same questions. Uh, who will win this election? Will there be uh, an outbreak of violence in the South China Sea? These sorts of things on a certain date. And that was the one requirement was every day, submit a forecast. Some teams uh, thought that prediction markets were the way to go. Other teams had different ideas. What Team Good Judgment did was tried them all. They tried uh, an individual condition where if you're a forecaster, you'd get the question and you would be left to your own devices to come up with a probability estimate. You would not be able to compare your forecast with others. You would not be able to compare your rationale with others. So that was one research condition. That was a tough one. Some really smart people came out, but the thing is that that research condition was inferior to the others. Two other main ones. Next one is prediction markets. That's where if you have a view about an event, you can go and bid on it. So if uh, say the US election outcome is uh, trading at 60 cents on the dollar in favor of the Republican, and you think the Republican is gonna win and that that's a low price, you'll buy it. And if you're correct at the end of the period, uh, you'll get a dollar if it occurs. And if it doesn't, you'll lose it all and go to zero. And that's the way prediction markets work. But they also allow you to trade uh, during the time that the question is open. So if, for instance, I see that 60 cents and I think that the crowd in the prediction market has for some reason overreacted one way or another to a news event, I may bid against it. Uh, quite distinct from what my own prediction is about the election outcome, if I think the crowd at this moment in time is mispricing it, I'll go trade against it and make some money on it. So in that case, my incentive is to retain any information I have and not share it. In fact, I might even be inclined to share disinformation if I think it'll help my position. And we see this on prediction markets. The third version, which I think is where the magic really happens, uh, well, it's not what I think, it's what we know, it's in the data, is to have teams, teams of forecasters working together and collaboratively. And in this case, 
the output is not my individual forecast. It's a team-based forecast. I'll have my own to be sure, so I want to beat my team members. But really, my team, we want to beat all the other teams, right? We want to be more accurate. So now the incentive is to share information. This is really an important feature, especially if you have a team with cognitive diversity. We're all coming at it with different pieces of information. Or if we're, if we're, if, if, if consider a forecast question is a mosaic and we need to fill out the mosaic with our forecast. If we each have different tiles to contribute to the mosaic, that does a few things. It means if I have a tile, you don't need to contribute it, it's already there, and vice versa. So we accelerate the process by sharing information, pooling our limited information. And it also, if we have different perspectives, that means you may be bringing a tile to the mosaic that it would never occur to me. So I'm benefiting from that cognitive diversity and accelerating the learning process for us all. And it turns out that that's a great way to generate accurate insights. So on the one hand, you're arguing that the real power of the approach is uh, combining forecasters into teams and sharing information. But at the same time, you recognize that certain people recognize as super forecasters on their own. So how do people distinguish themselves if they're sharing information with others in a team? It seems like it's pretty easy to copy somebody else. Was there a case in which the studies ran people individually and they got super forecaster status by themselves or that were they always parts of teams when they became super forecasters and would always take advantage of information that was out there essentially in the small public that was on the platform? Sure. So the super forecasters in the research phase came from uh, all the different research conditions uh, and including the individuals when they're just working completely on their own. There are some very talented super forecasters who came out of that condition. And you could see that by their individual scoring on these forecast questions. So there were some in that individual condition who definitely did better than the rest in that individual condition. And that's how they identified the super forecasters. There's some people who are just consistently better than the rest. So for the individual conditions, there were some who were consistently better than the rest in that condition, but they had a hand tied behind their back. They underperformed uh, the general forecasters as well as the future super forecasters in the other research conditions where that same dynamic started to show up in the research. And so that became a new research question. It wasn't part of the original design. They go, wow, what would happen if we identified the best of the best and then put them together on elite teams? Would they revert to the mean? There were many who thought that would occur. Or would they continue to get better by being around similarly motivated individuals? And it turned out to be the latter. The super forecasters who were put on that first team in year two continued to get better. And they did the same thing in the following year and observed that that first cohort continued to do better than the new cohort all the way through. So it's a process that as individuals and as teams, we can continue to get better by constantly getting feedback from the forecast questions that are posed. Now you raise a good question though. Well, maybe the easy thing to do 
is uh, to be a super forecaster is just to forecast the median, whether it's on good judgment open with your overall crowd or once you're on a super forecasting team just to do the team. You're absolutely right. And super forecasters themselves are pretty smart and will detect people who are doing that pretty quickly. And really, uh, the super forecasters themselves, once they get to that point, if really all they wanted to do was kind of cheat the system a bit, they would have dropped out a long time ago because the motivation really is largely the challenge of getting better, being out on the scientific frontier to improve forecasting and learn new things. And if you're a free rider, you'll get bored pretty quickly and drop away. And to be honest, it's not a problem we've observed to be material. I think, Corey, you could detect a value add per individual, so deviation from you know median forecast. So someone who's just doing the median forecast is not adding value relative. Because occasionally, somebody who's really got an independent way of getting to their forecasts will occasionally right, produce some uh, deviant forecast, which turns out to be correct. Right? To what extent did the government actually incorporate these learnings uh, from the original project into what is actually happening at DNI or CIA or NSA, places like that? Uh, that's a good question. But, but first on, on um, having people deviate from the median on a forecasting team, it's, that's really important to be able to have space for people to express their own view especially when it deviates from the median, because there may, that this is one of the protections against groupthink and other risks like that from having a group, is uh, allowing people to challenge what might be consensus thinking. And by using the median in particular, you make space for people to do that. Just a simple choice of a mean versus a median is quite consequential here. If you use the median, people who deviate widely from the group uh, will move the group's forecast and the rest of the group might resent it a little bit. But by using the median, it protects the space for people to have different views and express them. And if they are right, uh, we'll learn from that. And next time on a question like that, we're gonna pay more attention to them and vice versa. If over time, uh, somebody is pretty far out there and they're consistently not doing well, well, the rest of the team will pay less attention. It's also going to show up in their scores. So they'll take that feedback on themselves and begin to self-correct. That's one of the wonderful things about getting good and accurate scores. I don't want to get too technical here, but um, the basic metric you use for assessing forecasting accuracy is the Breyer score, essentially squared deviation from reality. So forecaster forecasts that there's a 70% chance it will rain tomorrow and let's call raining a one, um, not raining a zero. If it rains, they're off by 0.3, you square it's uh, 0.09. That's their Breyer score, right? But that divides X into two components, calibration and discrimination. And I think uh, discrimination captures your willingness essentially to, as we're go all in. Our, our listeners are pretty sophisticated, so I think they can capture the fact there are multiple dimensions to it. But am I right in thinking that you look for people who both uh, are willing to essentially not just track the mean prediction and often super forecasts to be very, to do very well, you've got to make pretty extreme forecasts if you think something is highly likely. Correct. Yeah. So the two terms that the researchers have used to capture the two drivers 
is calibration and resolution. And calibration is uh, like what we see with good weather forecasters, right? So if they say there's a 70% chance of rain next week and uh, they do that over 10 weeks, well, we're going to find out at the end of each week. Did they, did those 70% forecasts align 70% of the time with what the weather actually did? And three times not. So in that sense, we're looking, if we're well calibrated, for things to happen at the frequency at which they're forecast and not to happen at the frequency where they're not forecast. And that's very important. And, it's a, and it becomes a, a, a problem too. It's a challenge out in the world because if I say 70% chance of rain and it's sunny, well, you are wrong. I shouldn't pay attention to you. And that's what we've seen with some of the higher profile questions too with Trump and with Brexit where super forecasters and others too, like Nate Silver at 538, were fairly moderate in the forecast, but still said in the last election, the Democrat would win and the Republican won. So you're wrong. And it was very much the same 70, 30% split. So it's, uh, that's the calibration though. If you're well calibrated, you should expect those events to occur at the frequency which they're forecast. Resolution takes it another step. And that is when you are justifiably decisive in your forecast, you will move to uh, more extremes in your forecast. So uh, what's the one way to think about that? Well, regular forecasters tend to stay close to the 50% line. They might move a little up and they might move a little down, but roughly during the length of questions being open for regular forecast, and these are good, and they're on good judgment open and the like and getting a lot of good feedback, but about half their forecasts will tend to be between um, 35% and 65%, right? So close to the 50-yard line. The super forecasters don't like to stay on the 50-50 line. They want to get to... The, 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 the right direction of a forecast question as quickly as possible. Uh, and so half of their forecasts are between 15 and 85, which means the other half are below 15 and above 85. So they're showing uh, great conviction in their forecasts while retaining their calibration. This is the important part the forecasting activity that they're making in the tail distribution, they're retaining their calibration. So what does that mean? What that means is by getting there earlier, they're getting an accurate forecast well in advance of the rest of the crowd. And what the research showed was that the for super forecasters will get to that accurate forecast of say 90% on some event. Um, 200, 300 days before the rest of the crowd. So it's that time advantage. That's the real payoff. And that's what shows up in having better resolution while retaining calibration. It's what you get from doing a lot of forecasting and getting a lot of feedback and learning a, a, a lot from your own accuracy and how to improve it. Does that help? Absolutely. And the the part of the question, my question that we didn't get to is to what extent the government has actually incorporated the fruit of uh, this project that they sponsored. Sure. 
Well, that's a good question. I wish I knew the answer myself. We do know that uh, these are ideas and tools and techniques that work. We do know that some parts of the US government find value in it and uh, are incorporating these lessons and these tools. They don't really tell us where and by how much. That's something we don't know about. We, we do know that uh, they're there. And we do know that other areas of the US government, as well as governments overseas, are finding value in these approaches and putting them into their own decision-making systems, making a part of the training for their staff uh, at the government level and the, uh, the national level, at the state and local level. We also know this is the case overseas. Uh, especially the United Kingdom, they've been quite ahead uh, on these these sorts of things, and other governments too, uh, Finland, um, uh, the UAE, uh, and 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 others too. So it's been really exciting from that point of view. But to answer your question, how much are the U.S. intelligence agencies using the tools that their funding helped to define and refine? We don't know. So one of the reasons I ask is that uh, I have an old friend named Robin Hansen. I probably you're familiar with that name. So I've known him about 20 years now. And when I first met him, he was actually working on the mathematics of prediction markets. So he has, a, I think, some well-known papers on this, on exactly what the right way to set up a market is such that, you know, prices properly reflect collective probability judgments, et cetera, et cetera. And um, incentives are the right way to surface, you know, thoughts and uh, insights and things like this. So he worked on this for a long time. But then when I saw him, you know, not that long ago, I would say within probably a few years ago, um, and this, I could be misremembering what he told me, but I, this is my recollection is that he was somewhat dispirited about this because he said, well, in the various experiments that I participated in, and I don't know that how much overlap there is between what he did and what, uh, the Tetlock group was doing. Maybe it's the same thing or maybe it's different stuff, but he uh, he definitely had done some stuff for some corporate entities as well as government. And he said that he ended up in a very kind of cynical position where he just said, yeah, these things actually work. These mechanisms actually work for getting better predictions, but the leadership, the powers that be don't have the proper incentives to adopt them. And hence they generally are not adopted even though they work. And so that, that was my last data point on this question from him. So that's that's why I was asking you if maybe you had uh, an alternative uh, view on it. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and you're right. Uh, there's a lot of individuals and organizations involved on the research side of these things. And we're all, in a, in a certain sense, fellow travelers there. And just as far as prediction markets versus teams go, prediction markets are a great way to aggregate the wisdom of the crowd. It's just that in uh, many cases, team-based forecasting is even better. Um, but it really depends on what you're trying to do and the resources you want to deploy to be able to do it. If it's a short-term horizon, prediction markets are great. Yeah, I, I, should, have clar I should have clarified. I, uh, my conversation with him was not about the difference between uh, whether prediction markets are better or some kind of team-based forecasting or teams competing against teams, but just, just whether superior mechanisms for generating better predictions, which involve, you know, groups of people are being adopted in places where, you know, it can really help. And, you know, his take was the cynical take, which is that it's been shown to work, 
but for institutional reasons or incentives for powerful people, uh, they're just not adopted very widely. And he was he'd kind of given up that area of research. One comment I want to make is that this COVID thing is an example of like the hugest possible disaster, right? Because pretty obvious what was happening in uh, East Asia and then also even in Italy. Meanwhile, the U.S. government, including its intelligence services, which presumably have a bio-warfare detection function, right? They, they're supposed to be able to detect bio-warfare. How could they not detect, you know, an epi- a pandemic? <laughs> so it seems like it doesn't, I don't see any evidence for good, maybe in South Korea or Taiwan or places like this, but in, in the U.S. and the U.K., I don't see any evidence for good uh, information processing of, of this stuff uh, for high-level decisions. But uh, I'm curious what you think about it. I have a different perspective, I think. Um, and I am deeply cynical, uh, without a doubt. But I see promise, and I recognize that this is new, which makes it difficult to persuade people that it's worthwhile. It can be, it can be complex and complicated, which creates another hurdle. It also can be hard to connect to decisions, right? So why should I pay attention to this? How is it gonna make me make better decisions? And then there's also what I thought of as the Broadway problem. So, and that is, you know, if you're so good, why aren't you on Broadway? And the version of that here is, well, if this is so good, why isn't everybody already doing it? And those are multiple veto points for people to say, let's not do this. It makes it really tough to get something new, potentially complicated, potentially uh, threatening to status quo hierarchies, although that need not be the case, and also to request that resources be diverted from something else to something new. But it's happening. And in the very largest organizations, it's going to be tougher, without a doubt. And we see that, I think, in some of the lack of uptake uh, uh, that, uh, that Hansen was seeing. But it is being taken up. And I don't want to speak for other governments. They'll speak for themselves, for sure. Um, but I think as the months and quarters unfold, we're going to see recognition of the value broaden. Uh, and I think we'll also see that occur more in the private sector, because there's been a lot of uh, uh, adoption there, especially in finance, but also in energy, also in pharma. Wherever there's a lot of uncertainty that can be usefully quantified to make a better decision, that's, that's it. And you're right that COVID has become a, uh, an, a, a case study, a real world case study where existing methodologies of coming up with forecasts are, can be improved upon with these other new tools. And that recognition is really accelerated in the last, uh, certainly the last uh, eight weeks or so, and continue to see that now. So Warren, I wanna hop into your COVID work, um, but Steve, partly in response to your question, it, I think it's pretty well known that the US intelligence agency was quite aware of the power of these techniques early on. I think this is an issue discussed in uh, super forecasting, but there was a CIA study done where CIA agents were answering the same questions that were accessible to the public on Good Judgment Open. And I believe 
It was Michael Gersten at the Washington Post who leaked the results of the CIA study. Correct me if I'm wrong, Warren. But I think the finding was that super forecasters, uh, then defined as the top 2% of people on Good Judgment Open, outperform CIA agents by 30% accuracy, even though they had no access to the vast trove of classified materials and all this internal uh, information the CIA agents had. So they knew by, you know, I think by around 2014, that this is an extremely useful uh, device. So it's credit, you know, DOD is unlike many other federal agencies that it does fund very risky projects. So they were aware, but it's an interesting question, Steve, as to whether they did anything with this knowledge, knowing that this approach was better than their in-house right. analysts. I mean, I mean, just to be clear, I, I'm, I'm just relating, and again, I could be getting it wrong, so apologies to Robin if I'm getting wrong what he told me, but I'm just relaying his observation, which I think is consistent with what both of you guys are saying, which is that this, if I view this as a technology, this thing actually works and it's been demonstrated to work. The question is just adoption by the most powerful people who really make the decisions seems to be less than what one would hope for. That, that's all I'm saying. And I, I'm on the side of promoting uh, this kind of stuff as being good. Uh, everyone should work on their own calibration and you know, pre estimates of their own accuracy and precision, whatever it is. But the question is whether, you know, we can get into this in more detail. Like if you maybe are not that clever or not very familiar with a little bit of math, you, you just don't feel comfortable with using this as a way to like supersede your own gut instinct, which got you so far in life, right? You know, I can imagine lots of reasons why the really powerful people want to retain their freedom to make their own decisions, even in the face of a better forecasting technology but, but you, i hope you the think the desire go ahead you think the desire to make money or be successful would override this kind of it, well no this vanity. is where this is where robin's issue of incentives uh, comes in so if you're running a hedge fund and you're measured very well on returns uh yeah you, you do have a very strong incentive to get things right if you're running a country it's not so clear right so um or running a uh intelligence service or whatever it is so i mean if they're not measured well uh, maybe they don't have the right incentive to actually implement something like this. Well, it's um, it is something that is diffusing uh, this these approaches and others that are related to it to think probabilistically and to rely on the wisdom of the crowd to better quantify uncertainty. This it's a it's a it's a space that has been sparsely populated and. So on the one hand, you've got the, the hard quantitative types, the big data, purely data driven, right? So if it's my model needs to have numbers in it. But then on the other side, you've got people who are much more subjective about the way they think about things. And, and in the real world, there isn't always the data that you want to have to be able to make decisions that are highly subjective. And, and so people will operate, you use the right word too, on a hunch, they'll have a hunch. This is something that I think will work and they might have experience in it, whatever, but it'll be on a hunch. And what we're doing here is saying, let's quantify that hunch. Let's connect that qualitative subjective understanding about the way the world works and make it measurable testable, comparable, and, that, and, and do that by using probabilities. What is the probability of this subjective event actually occurring? 
And that's a way to connect the two. And it's a space that is proving to be very fertile. Good Judgment has done a lot of great work there, uh, led by Phil Tetlock and his colleagues. Others are there too. There's a lot more to be discovered, a lot more to be done. And you're correct, Steve, that the large organizations, well, they're not usually early adopters. They're usually late adopters. There are plenty of early adopters, though, where they're applying these sorts of approaches and finding value in them. In finance, for instance, here's a great example. Uh, a merger and acquisition is announced. What is the probability that it will go through? That's a very important forecast to get right. And if you can have even a few percentage points edge on what's getting priced into the market by your competitors, over time, that is worth a lot. And it's the same true for government policy decisions. For instance, if you're trying to project how many hospital beds you're gonna need, wouldn't it have been good in January if you had been watching what the super forecasters were saying, who said in January, when few people were even thinking about it, that the caseload is gonna go into the six digits by March. And that's what occurred. So if you're thinking of allocations for hospital beds, that can be very useful and literally life and death decisions. Same sorts of things for when a vaccine is gonna be developed or when treatments are gonna be widely available. Those sorts of things are very consequential for government decisions. And while some of the larger organizations within government may not be adopting quickly, others are. And we're gonna be hearing more and more from them uh, if and as they find utility in these approaches. That's the way diffusion often works is it's the early adopters are not the largest organizations. Although I will say that large organizations often have smaller units within them specifically tasked with identifying and diffusing these sorts of tools. And even in government, there are organization units that do that and uh, super forecasting tools are some of the things that they are looking at as we speak. Uh, when we'll hear about them, how widely they'll be adopted, that in itself is a forecast, but I'm pretty sure we'll hear about them long after we've heard about others, other use cases. I think this is a great topic. I don't, don't, don't want to go on for too far, but I actually have a little personal anecdote that kind of confirms the lack of incentive for adopting accurate forecasts, um, or at least methodology. Back when I was in consulting, I noticed that our firm would make lots of they were sort of forecast, but pretty close to flat out predictions as to how the client would do if they adopted our particular approach. There are rarely probabilities attached to them. They're extremely confident. I remember asking around whether we ever, ever checked to see whether our predictions came true. And the response I got was, well, that's not possible because our predictions depend upon the client implementations and we have no control of implementation. So you can't blame us if the prediction doesn't come true. Be that as may, I think you can question that, but it was quite clear there was very little incentive at the level of the organization to assess accuracy uh, because the people who were hiring the organization didn't want to assess accuracy because they didn't want to basically you know, raise to their superiors that something they had paid a lot of money for didn't work. We had very little interest in letting people know that our approach might not have worked. So I guess in the case where there's no feedback loop, that's a case where you essentially don't have any pressure on accuracy. So uh, it, it just, it was a really striking experience to me when I compared that 
conversation to the conversation that you know, Warren, you and I've had over various periods of time about you know um, the power forecasting because it's a situation where it's a very very profitable company, but the people at the top are just not held accountable um, on that particular line. They're held, held accountable for having happy clients, but not particularly for whether the claims they make to those clients turn yeah, out to be true. Or false. I mean, in the case of McKinsey, it may be extremely damaging to them for clients to know what their actual accuracy is because they may be priced on brand which and brand perception may be far in excess of what they can actually achieve in terms of uh, accuracy, right? So, so they may have a very strong incentive never to be marked to market in that way. Where are all the customers' yachts? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. I think McKinsey, uh, at the time I was there, was charging 30% more than the nearest competitor. Uh, it's hard to imagine they had 30% greater accuracy. Yeah, exactly. Um, so... But better just to allow the illusion to persist that, hey, we and BCG are awesome. And the, the comments were actually even funnier than that. BCG was described as commercial. Those people are just really commercial. <laughs> uh, we're not like that at all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, well, and, there's, uh, and, uh, and there's also some division of labor that can usefully be, be, uh, be part of how all of this fits together. And uh, well, first for like um, uh, the decision makers within large organizations, they have different skills, right? That's what helped them get to where they are. Being a skilled forecaster is not something necessarily you need to be a good leader by any means. Often a good leader is someone who can motivate people to get stuff done, whatever that thing is. And that's a different skill set. Uh, and one where, you know, the, the thinking probabilistically about, well, maybe this, maybe that, maybe the other thing, and oh, well, wait, and let me think it through, that gets you to an accurate forecast. But when it comes time to make a decision, you know, things change, and you need to get people to do things. Um, so the, the idea of having a, a high quality probability estimate is that the decision you make is going to be the best possible one in the decision set in front of you what you then do with it is a different thing. And I think it's the same thing with the management consultancies. Now, um, they do other things. And one of the things some of them are very good at is thinking about scenarios, right? What are the different ways the world might be from now? When we think about COVID, right? What might the world look like a year or two from now? And what are the different worlds we might find ourselves in? What they're not so good at doing and don't claim to do necessarily is which world are we actually headed into? Now, you might find an expert who will, on that hunch, go, well, I think it's this world that we're going into, bum, 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 bum. What we're doing here, a good judgment, is, okay, let's take those scenarios about what possible world we're going to go into, and let's break them down into testable propositions. And once we get those testable propositions, we can then go and get forecasts from the best in the business. And that will let us know which world we're actually heading into. Now, if you're a decision maker and you're in a position to alter the world we might be going into, then you can pose questions about the effectiveness of your interventions. So if I think... Um, if, if I'm, I'm uh, say, in the, in the military and I want to know what the scenarios might be about confrontation in, with China, in Asia, 
we'll have a bunch of scenarios. And then we can ask those same forecasters, if I put this carrier group in the South China Sea, will that improve the probability of the objective I want to see or reduce the probability of that occurring, whatever that might be. So separating decisions from scenarios from the forecasts can be a useful way to think about how the division of labor can be very effective. Because when you think about the decisions, right, the decisions can be very consequential in the tails, right? So a 2% probability of a coronavirus outbreak a year from now, if you're a decision maker, that has a very different meaning than if you're a forecaster. If you're a forecaster, you're just gonna wait and see what happens and get your feedback. If you're a decision maker, that 2% might be too high or, 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 or not. Uh, so the consequences of, the, of uh, what the probabilities are telling you can usefully be kept separate from the panel, from the group of forecasters who are providing the probability estimates and have a division of labor. So I think this is one of the this is one of the really interesting findings from the Good Judgment Project is that this kind of different perspectives, cognitive diversity, uh, leads to better group forecasts. And that's that was an interesting finding because it was actually contrary to what was being published before, primarily about bias, which is when you have people who think the same way, uh, putting them in groups has negative consequences. So. It, I think that was well established, but wasn't clear what happened when you have people of different points of view. Uh, do we know whether this works in general or just when people have the kind of mental outlook to be a good forecaster? Uh, is there something special about the people going to the teams, you think, uh, aside from cognitive diversity? Like if you take any group of people who's cognitively diverse, do you think your findings suggest that they will make better group decisions when put together, or is it some special sauce that happens? when you put people or high-performing forecasters together? Well, um, well, setting aside decisions, uh, they will, I think, reliably come up with more accurate forecasts by ha having cognitive diversity. And if I don't know anything other about a group, but that one is cognitively diverse and the other is not, no question which one I'm gonna pay more attention to. Uh, that's at the group level. At the individual level, there are some characteristics that are consistent with good forecasters. Uh, being good at pattern recognition is a very important one. Uh, another is being what they call actively open-minded. And this is the idea that your beliefs about the world are things that you're always testing, not protecting. Right? So we often see people on TV, they're protecting their beliefs. Oh, that doesn't matter. Oh, this doesn't matter. They're not very good forecasters. Uh, and, 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 you, and you can screen for that too and see people who are going to be better. Then put them on a platform start seeing how they forecast and start scoring them. And when you do that and you can observe that there is cognitive diversity at work, the results of the, uh, the forecast that they generate will be superior over time. Could, could we be a little bit uh, precise about what we mean by cognitive diversity? So for example, if I, is it beneficial to have high IQ and low IQ people? On the team, is that a positive form of cognitive diversity, or do you mean diversity in ways of thinking or uh, knowledge backgrounds, uh, perspectives? So, what what is that exactly is meant by the diversity? Oh, much more of the latter, Steve. Very much so. Uh, different mental models about how the world works has a lot of value. 
and that can show up. We have different backgrounds, um, different educations, different life experiences, different ways that we engage and think about the world uh, is, is, is what you really want to see. So we're not clones of each other. So if we are all, all went to the same schools, have the same jobs, have the same experiences, have the same mental models, and you pose a question to us as a team of forecasters, you're not getting a diversity of the crowd, you're just getting one person cloned multiple times. What you wanna have is a lot of different people with those different perspectives, able to contribute their views on a level playing field to really contribute to the filling out what the group is understanding. Now there's a great, there's great new research that you know, there's always more research coming. And one of the really interesting ideas that's coming out of this is the concept of noise and how it relates to bias as well. Uh, and it all fits with what we're talking about here. So in the original research, uh, they were focusing on, well, what's really going on here? Well, so an accurate forecast you can think of as one that improves the quality of information about the event that we're trying to forecast. Right? We wanna properly identify and weight that information. We also want to be aware of information that is not useful, that doesn't contribute to the accuracy of the forecast. And a lot of the attention on that side, the error, is the kind of error you get from bias. For instance, we tend to be overconfident. That's a bias. And that's predictable, systematic error. And over time, uh, so it's very difficult to do things about bias, but over time, because it's predictable, you can identify it. Oh, you're overconfident. I'm gonna correct for that in the algorithms. Now, the other kind of error that I think is really interesting is the non-systematic error. It does, it's information that does not correlate with the outcome at all. It's noise. And this is research that Daniel Kahneman is doing. Phil Tatlock has done some too. And the whole idea is that noise reduction can sometimes be difficult to identify. But once you do, there are very good techniques to reduce it. So at a group level, how does wisdom of the crowd work? What's really going on here? Well, one thing that's going on is that all the errors that we all have in a big group of people, like who wants to be a millionaire, they're canceling each other out because the error is normally distributed. You go to the median, there's the wisdom of the crowd. That's great. So it's a, it's a very crude but effective noise reduction tool with a crowd is just to take the median. Now, what was going on with good judgment is now let's provide individuals and teams of individuals tools to reduce the noise at that level, to squeeze out more of the noise, boost the quality of information that they are sharing together. So that's something that really works when you have cognitive diversity to identify the pieces of information that matter and zero in on them and at the same time, filter out the information that is not so useful, the noise. And so Warren, Warren, can I stop you? Because it's getting a little abstract, perhaps for our listeners. My guess is you actually have concrete experience with a couple of teams of actual individual people working to try to reduce noise. So could you possibly just pick in your head a team 
that you've worked with, describe to us who is on that team, what kind of backgrounds they have, and try to give for our listeners an illustration of what might be biases, what might be noise, just to give people a kind of concrete sense of how the concepts of noise and biases will apply to kind of group judgment. Is that possible to do? Just think of um, a team you've worked with, just give some idea of who's on there, what sense they're diverse, and try to give a kind of concrete sense of what these terms mean, like on the ground. Well, how about a specific example of what I think to be a good example of, 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 of noise? And because we see it all the time. And that is, um, without picking on anyone in particular, there are people who have a view about the world. Um, so and I'll give an example of, of Nuriel Rubini, right? His nickname Dr. is Doom. Dr. Doom, right? <laughs> He's always saying the world is on the edge of an abyss or sliding into the abyss. He's telling us the same forecast over and over and over. And I'll go a little farther, is that back in February, he was saying that the world is headed for a global downturn because of what he saw to be a spike in oil prices that was on the way. Okay, now a month later, oil prices collapsed which he then offered as support for why the world is heading into a global recession. So oil price spike, oil price collapse. Either way, it's the same forecast. Now, when you go back through time, how often do we have a global collapse? Well, they happen, uh, but not every year. Maybe it's one every 20 years or thereabouts. So empirically, to the degree that those kinds of forecasts are, get made, and they do not correlate with what subsequently happens, that's noise. So not to pick on just that one economist, there are many who do that. So I as a forecaster and the other forecasters on my team, when they see that kind of information, those kinds of headlines will very rapidly discount it and move it to the side. Now there may be something useful in there that's buried that we wanna pay attention to, but that's the sort of stuff we wanna filter out. We wanna filter in the subtly significant information and, and make more use of that. What are the early detection signals we can use? And how do you, how do you identify those? Well, so it's, it's um, one of the super forecasters put it very nicely recently, and I'm not going to get it exactly right. We were talking earlier about uh, the importance of being skilled at pattern recognition as being an indicator of a good forecaster. But it's not so much just identifying the pattern, it's also detecting when the pattern itself is changing. And a wonderful example of that was during the last US election, when some of the uh, super forecasters based in the DC area during the summer went on a car trip and uh, to, uh, to the Midwest and upstate New York. And usually in an election year, they'd see a lot of different signs in people's yards. That year, there were signs far and away for just one of the parties and not the other. So that was a subtle change that some of the super forecasters recognized as being significant, and they adjusted their forecast as a result. You think it through, right? The, 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 what they're seeing in that observation is that the usual pattern of uh, multiple par different parties having representation out in rural areas had changed. 
and they shifted their forecast as a result. That sort of thing I find is a great example of filtering out the noisy stuff and identifying and appropriately weighting the more subtle, significant information that's out there. Now, Warren, one of the, uh, I think, new focuses of good judgment is on trying to merge essentially machine techniques and computation with human judgment. You know, many people are saying that, well, look, eventually computers are going to be just unbelievably good at making forecasts of all sorts and will largely put people out of business. Now, I think that's extremely unlikely. Uh, my view is that they're probably going to be working together for the foreseeable future and probably forever. But I do recall a conversation that we had a couple of years ago where you said you were beginning to investigate performance of essentially machine prediction combined with human prediction. Do I have that recollection right? And if so, where, where, where's that research now? That, well, you're, you're right, Corey. The, the Boolean is and. It's humans and machines is really the way to go. And in a certain sense, that's always been true. Even the good judgment research relies a lot on technology. And the super forecasters themselves use a lot of different models to assist their own forecasting. Uh, the research that you were talking about is a little different. What that was trying to do was, uh, uh, is, uh, is just like the Good Judgment Project was a part of research to see what sorts of uh, tools and techniques can improve on the wisdom of the crowd. This asks the same question about what combinations of humans and machines on different kinds of topic areas can lead to better results than you would get from the wisdom of the crowd. And the results uh, of that research, uh, to my awareness, have been inconclusive. Uh, and the upshot, I think, is uh, the future for humans in forecasting is not in doubt uh, for these sorts of subjective events. Now, machines absolutely have an edge where you have a lot of data and you need to do rapid computations. That is the division of labor that seems to be taking shape. And that's not a new division of labor either. It's just moving, right? So computers themselves are machines that replaced humans. The original computers were people with a pencil and paper and adding machine. And machines came along and were able to do that work more efficiently. What that means is for the humans is that they have more time to do other things. Uh, they don't have to do the, the raw number crunching. They can instead think about uh, the consequences of making decisions, the element of judgment, the, com the combination of the subjective and the quantitative we were talking about earlier. That's the zone of judgment. And by having machine learning and big data and artificial intelligence really assist and do a lot of the heavy lifting, that leaves more time for us to focus in on what really matters uh, to, to make better decisions. And that's a great thing. I think that's a great trade. Um, as time goes on, no doubt machines will be doing more. There may even be more and more areas of decisions themselves where we go, you know what? The machines have got it. Uh, let's rely on that. You know, like radiology might be one where uh, in the not too distant future, machines will be doing a great job at uh, detecting those sorts of issues that can outperform humans. Uh, we'll be seeing other areas too. But for the moment, uh, when it comes to the more subjective 
sorts of decisions that we all need to make, uh, the machines are not there yet. So in your work, where do you use uh, computer models and what do you use them for? So it, it's at three levels, really, uh, I think. Um, level one is at, an, at the level of an individual forecaster, right? So one thing I do myself when I see a forecasting question is I like to make a spreadsheet and get all the data I can find and drop it in and look for base rates, right? And, and uh, I'll, I'll do very crude models that way. Um, other forecasters will get far more sophisticated and create uh, Bayes nets even and, uh, and take other sophisticated approaches like that. So at an individual level, we'll be using machines and computers. Then when we aggregate the data, the individual forecasts and that come up through the teams, we have a group forecast. And this is the next level at which the machines can really be helpful. And that's to have an algorithm that further squeezes out uh, the noise and, 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 and gets much more uh, uh, higher quality forecast. And in the good judgment research project phase, that step alone uh, could contribute to, you know, uh, materially 10, 20 percentage points to, to the accuracy of a forecast when you're putting it all together. So individual and then the group forecast. And then what do you do with that forecast is the next level. So the forecast from the humans and the machines through this process can then be fed into, into a larger system that can include other sources of information from big data, from AI and machine learning, and have a much more robust ongoing system that doesn't rely just on big data or just on subjectivity, but is a blend of everything to have a much more fully formed model about how how things will work for consequential decisions. I have uh, sort of a general and meta level question. So the firm you run, is it basically the business model is like a consulting service? So you're selling forecasting capabilities to clients and they pay you like on a consulting basis? How does it actually work? There's a little bit of that, uh, but we're not really in the consulting business. Um, the main thing we do is we have the super forecasters. We got the best and clients will pose their questions to the super forecasters and we'll provide probability estimates along with comments about, uh, about those forecasts. And we'll do that for individual questions. We also do it on a subscription basis. So we'll have a set of questions say on global risks as we do and people are able to subscribe to that. And so that's our main central business line is that service, which is quite scalable. And we work with organizations in government, defense intelligence, finance, energy, and, and others too. Can you say how many super forecasters you actually employ to make these forecasts? They are uh, independent contractors and uh, will, uh, will work with us on task orders. And at the moment, there are about 150. And each year, we go to Good Judgment Open and invite the best to the best there to come and join the professionals. So that's one thing we do. Sometimes organizations want to build these capabilities internally, too. Uh, and so we will provide training to show what works and what doesn't, what the best practices are. 
to come up with forecasts as well as to pose the questions that will matter inside organizations where they can get the wisdom of their own crowd. And is there any evidence that your customers are in a sophisticated way evaluating your performance? I'm not quite sure I understood the question. Well, so I'm buying a product from you. I'm buying some forecasts or probability distributions from you. And if I'm disciplined, I would, you know, after a few years of having a subscription to your service, have my own view of just how good you are. How how well do you outperform some other entity that's selling me predictions or my internal capabilities? What's the level of sophistication on the client side evaluation of the product that you detect? In other words, are they just they just they read a book called Super Forecasters and they decide, hey, these guys are awesome. Let's just pay them to do some stuff for us. Or are they themselves sophisticated consumers of, of what you're providing? Boy, Steve, I wish it were that easy that they just read the book and say, sign me up. It isn't. And they're very sophisticated and they want to see value, the value proposition in, in, in what this can do. And, and the, the specific way that you're asking about is, well, how do I know that the, this is accurate information? And you're right. Uh, the best way to find that out is to be able to compare it to something else, some other external source of forecasting, for instance. And uh, that's been done. And it's been done by clients. It's also been done by us. And as far as we're aware, uh, the super forecasters on any reasonably rich mix of questions, so the data is meaningful, have come out ahead. Um, it's been more informal experiments too, where some clients have posed questions to the super forecasters and done their own internal forecasting on their own, didn't tell us about it until later. Uh, and to the degree that they have been sharing those results, it's uh, showing the super forecasters to be, to be well ahead. And, and, uh, and, and it's not terribly surprising in a certain sense either, because a lot of the way that forecasting gets done is without the benefit of these best practices, using crowds, doing updates, uh, pooling information. These sorts of basic things have not yet uh, diffused as widely as they, as they could. And, uh, and I hope that that changes in the, in the months and quarters ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised that you guys outperform uh, other options. What is interesting to me is the degree of sophistication of the consumers, the clients, in terms of how well they try to measure that or benchmark that. For them to keep coming back, they're going to want to have evidence to support it. And, that, and that's what we certainly have been seeing. To give you another kind of classic example, is which I've been interested in for really a long time, is estimating alpha of traders. And so obviously huge compensation numbers are tied to this question. You know, you can, you can talk to experts, uh, either academic researchers or people in the business who have diametrically opposed views. One set will say, oh yeah, we can measure alpha. There's enough record in uh, somebody's trades over some five, 10 year period as a portfolio manager to really get a sense of like whether they have alpha or not. And then there are other people who are very pessimistic and say like, no, we never know because this guy could have just been lucky because his own personal biases that arise for idiosyncratic reasons from his life just happened to align well with market conditions for his five-year run. So I, I think there's still some dispute as to whether 
you know, that very well-defined quantity uh, can be reliably estimated, or even if it's a stable thing to estimate uh, for individuals. And, and that's a very, very clear problem that everybody has. Everybody that runs money has this problem. Um, and yet there's still, I don't think there's a universal agreement on what the actual situation is. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, and, it, and it goes to um, how do you evaluate performance? And this is uh, some, some of the other interesting research that's been going on and what Phil Tetlock has called Alpha Briar. And so what is that about? So Alpha, uh, when you boil it down, it's your P&L, right? So it's an outcome-based way of evaluating performance. Well, a slight correction. So it's your P&L, but normalized to the amount of risk you took on. So if you took on, if, if, if your portfolio is very stable and you didn't take on a lot of risk, even a smaller level of uh, return, rate of return would be acceptable, right? So it's it's, it's return normalized to the amount of volatility or risk that you took on. However you define it though, right? It is an outcome yes. based evaluation of performance. And a Breyer score is a process based evaluation, right? So it tells you, were you, were you right for the right reasons? And you can combine the two, you can think of a grid where you have alpha on the y-axis and the Breyer score on the x-axis. And what you want to see is high alpha and low Breyer score. And this is information that exists. Analysts and portfolio managers are making forecasts all the time that could be tracked and converted into a Breyer score. We also see what the performance is and that can be measured as alpha uh, and, and populate a grid to see where analysts and portfolio managers collectively land. And ideally, you'd like to see them in that upper left quadrant, but perhaps they're in the upper right quadrant. And that's the zone of, of uh, better lucky than smart, right? That's a time-tested adage. Oh, well, you know, I, would, I'd, I was uh, right, even though my reasons were completely misplaced. There's a great example of that in the last election of that too. I know a lot of people, I'm sure you do too, who had a view about the election outcome that the Democrat would win and that that would be good for markets. And so they went long. And sure enough, in the new year, stock market soared and they looked brilliant, but they were better lucky than smart. They were right for the wrong reasons. And if you take an alpha briar approach, you will get the feedback that you were just lucky and not smart in that instance. And, uh, and, and, uh, and be able to act to improve in the future. So that's a really interesting area. Some firms are actively trying to combine ways to evaluate performance in that way. I think it's a very promising area to be. Yeah, it's very interesting because uh, some people could have, you know, if you see high alpha and low briar, then, you know, I think first hypothesis would be this guy's lucky. But it could also be that uh, the articulated events that are in the Breyer score that people think are driving the market actually aren't. And so you could be wrong on all the Breyer stuff, but you have some gut feel for just what the market is going to do. And you're able to trade on that and generate the alpha, even though your Breyer score is low. So there, there, I don't know if that's a reality. That really could be how things are, but I wouldn't completely discount it. On, on this issue of hunches, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of this guy Gigarenzer. 
So he's a, I think, German psychologist who is a little bit of a foil for Kahneman and Tversky. I, I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he's also fairly prominent in, in some of these decision theoretic uh, places. And he actually claims to have data that suggests that in a lot of settings, what, there's you have to you have to define this very carefully and I won't do a good job of it, but sort of expert intuition where people make up their minds very quickly, but they have a lot of experience in the area does actually outperform this kind of rational, you know, Bayesian uh, thinking, which incorporates lots of details and, you know, things like this. And, you know, just recently, I think he's been making claims that he has lots of data that suggests that uh, sort of sort of informed hunches uh, actually, you know, is it, of course it's 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 subsuming lots of information processing and deep intuition that your brain is doing. You just don't have conscious access to it. Um, he claims there's a lot of evidence that that's actually better than these sort of more rational um, algorithm-like things that uh, that some of us might prefer. Well, and I'm, I don't know that there, I'm not as familiar with his work, um, but there there may be more overlap. Um, I am more familiar with uh, Gary Klein and his work, and uh, and, and it's the idea of um, acting on intuition. I'm not going to be saying it right. I'm sure saying it a different way, but the idea is that you accumulate a lot of experience, and through experience, you begin to recognize situations almost intuitively, and act on those recognitions that you may not even be able to articulate to yourself. It's just something that's become built in, that you have learned, that you have acquired through experience. Yes, I think that's, I think we're talking about the same thing. And in that sense, uh, super forecasting is the same kind of thing. Being able to tr translate hunches into numerical probability estimates, it's a skill of the same sort. And for the people who do it a lot, it becomes second nature. And oftentimes they won't even be able to articulate why. It's gonna be a hunch that they quantify with a number because that's now second nature. Uh, and, uh, and so in that sense, maybe there's a fair amount of overlap in what these research results would be showing. Love data, love to see that data too. Yeah, this has been a debate. Gigrange has been having this with Kahneman since the 90s. I think some people do think that it may it's just very hard to separate them empirically, right? Any scientist or any expert in an area has internalized a phenomenal amount of information and computational principles. And the question is, is this stuff explicit or not? Uh, that just may be the difference. I think the extreme version of GigaRenser, right, is that the computation is not happening. Uh, that at some level, something else is happening aside from using Bayes or, you know, uh, a physicist using very sophisticated intuition that effectively internalizes, you know, a, a lot of a number of physical laws. The extreme version is there's something else going on, but I think the natural version is that over time you've simply, these things have simply become part of your, you know, your basal computation, and so you make judgments without explicitly pulling out a pencil and paper. It, it, I think if that's right, right? It's I I, I haven't seen his data that you're talking about, Steve, but it's if if that's right, it's very hard to imagine how you can you know, whether there's a substantive empirical difference, except whether it's conscious or not. I think without getting too far into his stuff, I think some of the recent stuff I, I think I listened to a couple talks, recent talks of his, you know, maybe the distinction was judgments that someone can make very quickly and so quickly that they clearly didn't go through any kind of like 
uh, articulatable analysis or algorithm. Well, it could be an algorithm, but it wasn't something where they they chained together a bunch of reasoning. They just they just said, okay, that's not going to happen, <laughs> you know. So. Uh, and yet, in some circumstances, he claims to have data where that just outperforms allowing the guy to have 20 minutes and access to Google and do a bunch of other things before they kind of come to, and they use a pencil and paper and a spreadsheet. And he, he claims to have, exa- I think, I could be getting this wrong, but I think he has claims to have examples where the former beats the latter uh, for certain you know tasks. And so I, I found that quite interesting. So they get it wrong if you give them time to think? Yeah, exactly it. That's what he's claiming. They're, he has examples like that. Interesting. Um, so Warren, we're about out of time, and we in fact didn't get to the one topic we thought we'd talk about. It's been a great conversation anyway. Any last few comments about your new project on COVID? Because I think this is something our listeners might be very interested in. So tell us a little bit about your uh, current crowdsourcing project, where you're really focusing on experts uh, to answer specific questions about COVID. Yeah, so we've got our super forecaster dashboard with some high level questions, but we've also set up a platform that, and we have a good judgment open too, where the public at large can engage on a lot of questions related to COVID. But we thought it'd be helpful to provide a platform for the experts themselves uh, that's closed. Uh, You need to be a professional and qualify as such. Uh, And then you can go and uh, contribute your wisdom to that crowd on the more technical questions. And I'm hopeful that it will be helpful for for the experts because many of them, we were talking about this earlier, have been forecasting with one hand behind their back, uh, not doing best practices. So often we see out in the media too, a collection of of forecasts from experts that just don't look good because they are made at a moment in time. It's a simple aggregation, a median of the experts involved, and they don't have an opportunity to exchange their own information and make an update based on that other information. Those very simple basic best practices that can be really helpful. So that's why we've set up a, a, a platform for experts to go and forecast on some of these questions, make their initial forecast, benefit from the other perspectives they'll see there, and then make an update. Because really, when we're making forecasts, most of the work, of the mental work, goes on into that first initial forecast. But the payoff and accuracy is what comes next. So it's maybe 80% of the labor coming up with that initial forecast and then 20% more labor by reading other comments and just rethinking your own assumptions is a big payoff in accuracy. So 80% of the accuracy can come from 20% of the work. So who are you inviting onto this new platform? Any, anyone who qualifies as an expert broadly defined. They're self-qualifying. Uh, so epidemiologists, practitioners, medical professionals uh, and policymakers who are deeply involved in these issues. They're all invited to come and, and, uh, and, uh, and benefit from that platform and hopefully it'll help them in their own forecasting as well as provide them with the wisdom of that crowd when they need to make the uh, decisions in front of them. Well, Steve, I think uh, we're about at our end of our time with Warren. Uh, do you have any last questions? No, Warren, it's been really uh, great talking to you. It's been a privilege, actually. I've been 
yeah, as you can tell, deeply curious about the area that you work in. And I, I, I you know, I, I raise some cynical observations, but I, I fundamentally think it's a, it's a useful technology for human decision making and uh, making better predictions. So I, I wish you guys all the best. Well, thank you. It's been a great conversation. I love tough questions, and I hope I gave you some reasonable answers. It was great catching up, Warren. Thanks for your time. Take care. Thanks, Corey. Thanks, Steve. Bye-bye. Have a good one.